This is Palm Sunday, of course, the Sunday before Easter. Many of you, if you grew up around church, you can't remember when you learned about Palm Sunday. It's one of those things we like to teach children. It's easy for children to get excited about, and so you learn about Palm Sunday early on. So we want to look again at this familiar passage of Scripture and just reflect on our own standing with Jesus and what's going on in our own lives. Jesus has, by this time, by this morning's passage, moved south. He had been to Jerusalem many times, of course, over his lifetime for the great feast and for different events. But he's a Galilean from the north, but now he's moved south uh, down to the Judean area and to Jerusalem in particular for the last time. He will meet after the resurrection back up in Galilee one time with the disciples, but he's moved south aiming at the cross because it's been about the cross all along. All that great teaching, all those healings, the miracles, all the things that are part of those three years of Jesus' ministry have now focused on that initial primary target of the cross. Jesus came to die. Jesus came to die for you in your place, in my place, that we might have salvation. So that's our gospel, and that's what Easter's all about. But by Palm Sunday, he's moved south. He came to Jerusalem and stayed in Bethany. Bethany is the home community or village of Lazarus. And you may remember the story of Lazarus who died. And they wondered why Jesus didn't come quickly. But Jesus delayed and came after Lazarus had died. And Jesus called him forth from the tomb. And that was there in Bethany, the suburb of Jerusalem called Bethany. It is there that Mary and Martha uh, reside. So it's sort of a Jerusalem temporary headquarters whenever Jesus and his disciples came south. If you were at the temple and you looked east, you'd see the Kidron Valley down there with the Garden of Gethsemane and the low country. And then the, the rise of the Mount of Olives and just over the ridge was Bethany. And next to Bethany is Bethphage. And the gospel writers, all four of them write about this event and different details on it. But they refer to those two communities as the starting point for this parade day. It is a parade that will come over the ridge. So I want to, uh, the scripture will begin at uh, Luke, at John 12. But before we get to that, Luke gives us this description. Luke 19, verse 29. And it came about that when he had approached Bethphage and Bethany... Near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village opposite you, in which you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has yet ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you why you're untying it, thus shall you speak. The Lord has need of it. And those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. Maybe because he was a perfect predictor. Maybe because he had prearranged all that. Likely he, uh, but uh, Bethphage is just up the road. And so leaving Bethany now, this contingent will go a little bit north before they go over the ridge and down the mount. We switch now to the screen, if you don't have your own Bible, uh, to verse 12 of John chapter 12. On the next day, while the great multitude who had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him 
and began to cry out, Hosanna. Jerusalem's not a real big city today uh, compared to the great American cities. It's not a, a big city at all in New Testament times. But when the big feast would occur, the, the population would swell as people came in from a lot of locations to participate and be a part of that. And Passover was probably the greatest of those feasts, and the people have gathered there. There are people from several groupings as we are gathered here in this passage. There's the group that's with Jesus. Uh, they're the core. They will be the core of the early church. Uh, these are the real believers, those who know Jesus well and have heard him and watched his miracles, and they've come south with him from Galilee, and they're uh, progressing with him along the trail. They're the other crowds that have come in. And at Pentecost, a few weeks down the road, you'll see them coming in with their different language backgrounds uh, from around the Mediterranean. They've come into Jerusalem for Pentecost. And at uh, the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, uh, the miracle of languages occurs there and the gospels proclaimed and 3,000 turned to Christ. When you look at Acts 2 and the, the great number of people who turned to Jesus that day, I think they're pre-evangelized largely by what we're looking at today. I think Palm Sunday uh, was a, an, a moment when many heard about Jesus for the first time. Others who had heard about him got some clarification, but they're being pre-evangelized for Pentecost. And then there are the people in the city itself that are always there. Some of them the Jews that live in Jerusalem. Uh, some of them Pharisees, some of them Sadducees, some of them Zealots. All of them have different fears, anxieties, hopes, expectations. And then they're Romans, always the Romans. Tonight we'll look at the last trial of Jesus that takes place at the Praetorium, which is likely the, the centerpiece of Fortress Antonio, which is right on the northern edge of the Temple Mount itself. And from the four towers of the Antonia Fortress, you could look down into that valley and over to the Mount of Olives, and you could see Jesus coming over the rise, and you can see the people cheering and waving palm branches and singing. And, and as a Roman soldier that's there to keep peace, you probably wondered, is this going to turn into some kind of trouble, these numbers of people and all the excitement? What is this really all about? But the crowd is crying out, Hosanna, which is... A little awkward to translate uh, into uh, any language, but it just is basically uh, save us or uh, Lord save us or deliver us. And John, who was there, maybe John's even leading the donkey or the colt along for Jesus. He's hearing all of this and he says, this is what they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They got that from Psalm 118, and they're just quoting familiar words that would have been in their thinking as they look for a Messiah or a deliverer. And then there's this other little phrase that John adds on that they said, even or indeed the king of, the, the king of Israel. Hosanna, this one comes in the name of the Lord, but he's, he's even the king of Israel. Now, depending on what you wanted and what you expected, that would come across to you a lot of different ways. To a Sadducee, that's not what you want to hear. You don't want things to change. You don't want a new king. You want the status quo. To the Pharisees, uh, they might want Messiah and a king, but not him because he's just too much of a loose cannon for them and he doesn't acknowledge all their rules. To the Zealots, this would be pretty exciting stuff. Maybe this is the guy that will lead us 
over the Romans and, and deliver us as a nation from the oppressive Romans. For the Romans, like, wow, we better watch this. And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. That comes from the prophet Zechariah, who lived and prophesied over 500 years before Jesus. That's put into the scriptures back at that point and read and reread down through the centuries. And here Jesus, not just trying to fulfill that, but what he does, does fulfill that. Uh, there are those words, those ancient words from the prophet. Since these things his disciples did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. And so the multitude who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, were bearing witness. Imagine if you were with Jesus through those three years or you're one of the disciples or the extended group of disciples and the crowd is cheering and you're trying to explain to people coming along, this is Jesus. This is who we follow. This is our leader. This is our hope. This is our Messiah. They're bearing witness for this cause. Also, the multitude went and met him because uh, they heard that he had performed this sign, the sign of raising Lazarus. The Pharisees, therefore, said to one another, you see that you're not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. So it's a discouraging day for the Pharisees. We're losing our grip. We're losing control. Crowds are swarming around him. This is going to go from bad to worse. Luke has them at that point crying out, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king, the one coming in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Such excitement. And some of the Pharisees and the multitude said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. This is in Luke 19, if we've jumped track. And he answered and said, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Choir, you sang about that last week, right? And when he approached, he saw the city and wept over it. I have on my table back in the office now a Bible that Nathan gave me uh, just a few months ago. And it's an ESV Bible, but it was commemorating 400 years of the King James Bible. So it's an interesting product. But it's got... Uh, five pieces of real modern art. You can't even really quite make out what the, the pictures are depicting if there weren't descriptions underneath them. But the first piece of art in there is the tears of Jesus. It's described as the tears of Jesus. And it comes from this passage. Coming down the Mount of Olives, looking into the city. I was talking earlier in my office above one of my bookcases is a picture this wide and about that tall of Jerusalem today that Carol Weeks graciously gave me. It was Bill Weeks' picture from his pastor's office uh, for many years. And if you took out the Dome of the Rock and you plugged in Herod's temple, you'd begin to get the feel of what Jesus looked into. And Jesus looks into that city that he's very, very familiar with. And he knows all the history, the thousands of years of history coming down to this day. And he looks at the city and he weeps. It's a surprising response probably to the disciples because 
Well, finally, we've got a crowd. We've drawn a crowd, and we've got people cheering, and this should be exciting, and why the tears? If you've been there before, as you descend the mountain, halfway down, there's a church along the trail that acknowledges the tears of Jesus. It's named after that. And Jesus pauses to weep, not because people are cheering, but because he knows the hearts and the need, the depravity of the human race, and how quickly things will change in the coming hours. Now, I used to be very discouraged as a Bible reader that people could go from what's just been described by the gospel writers for us, the cheering and the hosannas. How could you go from that to crying for Jesus' crucifixion by Friday? Well, the truth is it's probably two different groups of people. Maybe some overlap of some of the people. The people that would call for crucifixion on Friday before Pilate that we'll look at tonight, the people calling out for that are not a people lining the Mount of Olives as Jesus descends to the great eastern gate. The people that would cry out for that would be those leaders of the nation, the Sanhedrin, those that would have Jesus on trial within a few days and call for his execution. But Jesus knows the hearts of all people and what's going on, and he knows that what's happening there that day was going to change in the coming hours. It would get increasingly dramatic. and It would grow uh, from this setting of celebration into a time of teaching and into a time of his arrest and betrayal at the hands of Judas and the cross. But as we celebrate Palm Sunday today and Easter next Sunday and Good Friday, Friday night and our service here, please come to that. When we do that, I want you to just keep in mind this thought. From Jesus' perspective, from the perspective of sovereign God, none of this is out of control. It will look crazy on Palm Sunday to the Romans and to the Sadducees and on Friday to the Christians, to the disciples, to John and Peter. It will look like it's out of control. For Jesus, it is never, ever out of control. It wasn't on Palm Sunday. It wasn't on Good Friday. It wasn't on Easter Sunday morning. It's always under control and aimed at his sovereign purpose. It may seem to you today something in your life is out of control. Let me tell you, Jesus is on track. And by faith, you can tap into that. Well, Jesus pauses and weeps. He weeps because for many of those that are cheering and many of those that are watching the cheering and have lined the way down the Mount of Olives, this is a bit of a flash in the pan. You know what a flash in the pan is? Uh, Some of you guys would know. Uh, I have a black powder rifle I haven't shot since we lived in Missouri. They're real into that kind of thing up there and Lewis and Clark and all that stuff. So one day I went and I bought a little kit to assemble a black powder rifle. Uh, And it took about 15 minutes to assemble it. I found out when I got the kit open that it really only had a few pieces and you had to finish the stock, but the mechanism was pretty simple. And you'd load that powder down through the muzzle and then the bullet down through the muzzle and pack it in. And then you had little caps that would go over a mechanism in the back. And you'd fire and that cap would explode and it would shoot a little bitty spark down into the chamber where the powder was. And then you get the big explosion that shot the shell out. 
The predecessor to that percussion cap was the flintlock rifle. And I know some of you guys probably have a bunch of those. Uh, and the uh, first few times you do that, it's a pretty scary thing. And you, you would put powder in the little pan, the exposed pan, and you pull back the trigger, and it's got the little uh, flint on there, and the flint would fly over into that pan and create a spark. And, and hopefully enough of that spark would go down the chamber to hit the big wad of powder, and then you'd have this explosion. So you get this... It's a double explosion. And the first time you get the first one without the second one, it's a scary thing. Because if you've read about it, you know that there's a chance that a little bit of that spark is still alive in there. And though the first flash has gone off and the second one hasn't, it still might. And you might be holding something that could go off at any minute. So you've got to be very careful with that. Nathan and I went to a state park and shot one afternoon uh, at Target's. And that rifle went off, the, the cap went off, and the bullet didn't go off. The big charge didn't go off. So I cocked it again and put another cap on and fired it again. That usually will solve it. Didn't do it. I did it about five times. I said, this is not going to change. And here we are. And we've got to get in the car and go home and do something about this. And so I took that barrel out of the gun and put it in the trunk of the car and hoped that it didn't blow through the side of the car into somebody else's automobile passing by. But you always had to worry that the, the, the little explosion was going to lead to something dramatic. And when it does go off, it's pretty exciting. First time I ever fired that rifle, by the way, I hit a bullseye. I thought I missed the target. And the bullseye was a little black dot about And I went right through that. And the next five shots didn't even hit the target. But it's just like beginner's luck. A flash in the pan is when something happens. It's, it's exciting. It's pretty cool. In fact, reenactors, when you see uh, the Lewis and Clark guys in Missouri or guys in the movies, they're just doing the flash in the pan part, and, and uh, they put in the rest of the sound. But the flash in the pan uh, needs to produce something more. Palm Sunday should have produced something more. And a lot of those people... The next day and the next week, you couldn't find them. And the, the week, instead of getting better and better and better as it went along, grew increasingly lonely all the way down to the cross. A lot of churches today are doing the flash in the pan number, and when nothing is sustainable out of it, they just keep doing flashes in the pan and try to maybe a little bit bigger flash in the pan. But, but nothing solid results. Jesus weeps over the city because it's a bit of a flash in the pan that day. A lot of excitement. But how much real conversion, how much transformation of the Spirit is occurring that day in Jerusalem? Jesus weeps because he knows just how lost they really are. When's the last time you wept for America? Your culture, your generation, your people... People that you know that don't know Jesus, that don't understand or don't accept the gospel. Jesus carries the burden. This is what he will take all the way to Calvary on the cross. He will be weeping over the spiritual condition of the nation of Israel and the burden. Well, the events continue on from there. 
Uh, if you were to study all four of the Gospels, and he comes back the next day and he cleanses the temple. It's not the first time he did that, but he, he turns over the tables and upsets things and stirs it around. And in that context, Mark says that he said, he began to teach them uh, and say to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a, a robber's den. You've cheapened this. You've made it something other than the profound thing it is. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of activity here. And if, if activity amounts to anything, oh, yeah, you're doing great. But your hearts are not right before God. That's the call for the weeping. That's the source of the cleansing of the temple. And the quoting from the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah. This house, this temple... And what this is all about, Jesus is saying, this is about my coming. And you praying for this and preparing your heart for my coming. And the overflow of that and the years that are to follow is that the nations of the world will hear about this. Places unimagined. Between services this morning, I don't know how I got into it, but I, I was looking at Bible maps. And uh, the New Testament map I had didn't have the name Spain on there. And I knew Paul referred to Spain uh, in Romans, and so I was looking at the connection, trying to find that. And anyhow, that was the edge of the world, Spain, after Spain. Who could? Uh, there's a lot of water out there. Nobody could comprehend Georgia or even Africa and Asia or Northern Europe. But Jesus said, this temple and all this religion that you've built your world around, it aims at me as the Savior of a, of a gospel that will go to the nations of the world. So we are called from the very beginning, even from the ancient prophets, Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus, and Jeremiah, 100 years later, we're called by the prophets to focus on the temple as a place where deliverance will come and that deliverance will impact the world. It will not be a flash in the pan. It will change things forever. Easter is that second explosion, the big boom. Jesus' victory over the grave. Jesus' victory over your sin problem, the finished work of the cross. And then we're invited to take that by Jesus to the nations. So this week we celebrate, and we'll gather through a number of activities through the week. And I encourage you, pick one of the Gospels, maybe go home and read John between now and next Sunday. Allow one of the Gospels to speak to you. Even if you've read it a thousand times, read it again and say, Lord, show me the wonder of this week back in the first century when Jesus lived out these experiences. Don't come around the church and around the Gospel and around the Bible and let it be a flash in the pan in your personal experience. Look for the big boom. Lord, bring it home to me and change me, transform me by the power of the cross, by the finished work of Jesus' cross. I want to ask you to bow your heads and join me in prayer. Father, we're grateful this morning that the ministry of Jesus was no flash in the pan and everything that he set out to do was absolutely accomplished in that holy week a long, long time ago. We're grateful for the teaching. We're grateful for the miracles. 
We're grateful for the example that we see in his life. And we are this week especially supremely grateful for the cross and the finished cross and that Jesus died in our place, bearing the weight of our sin. And we're grateful for the rejoicing in heaven today because of that and that the tears of the Mount of Olives give way to the victory that we have in Jesus. Lord, help us to celebrate this week in spirit and truth and uh, help us to be transformed increasingly and progressively and continually by the power of the cross of Jesus. For we do pray in his name. Amen.